Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a psychiatrist details a suicide prevention program that's now available to younger teens. Our mission is very simple, to save and transform lives. So this really is a very unique program. An epidemiologist reflects on what the pandemic has taught public health experts. I've learned that human behavior has a lot more to do with infectious disease transmission than I had initially imagined. And a neurologist talks about the diagnosis and treatment options for adults with epilepsy. In general, epilepsy is a, a disorder of the brain that has a propensity to generate seizures. All that, along with five things women can do to reduce their risk of heart disease, plus a visit from the Healing Muse. But first, the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, an epidemiologist talks about what she's learned from the pandemic. Then a neurologist goes over how epilepsy is diagnosed and the most common treatments. But first, a psychiatrist tells about a suicide prevention program that is now available to 14 and 15 year olds. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. A recovery-based suicide prevention program that has had great success at Upstate is expanding to include younger people. Here to talk with me about it is Dr. Robert Gregory. He's a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences who developed dynamic deconstructive psychotherapy, which is used in the prevention program. Thank you for making time for HealthLink on Air, Dr. Gregory. Sure, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Amber. Now, the psychiatric uh, high-risk program that was launched in 2017 was aimed at people between 16 to 40. Can you tell us what it was designed for and how it works? Sure. Uh, this program was started to meet a need. We were having record numbers of suicides in young people in central New York and around the country but there were no programs specializing in the treatment of individuals who were at high risk for suicide. So that's what this program is all about. What I didn't know at the time is just how unusual this type of program is in the United States. Uh, it turns out that there are very few programs nationally specializing in the treatment of high risk individuals, uh, most likely because of the liability risk. And there are only a handful that aim to help these individuals work towards recovery instead of just risk reduction and symptom management. Our mission is very simple, to save and transform lives. So this really is a very unique program and it's starting to attract some national interest with people coming as far away as Georgia and Texas to attend our program. So what's included in the program and, and how long does it last? Well, this isn't a residential or day treatment program. It's a comprehensive outpatient program. And we offer a full range of treatment options, including weekly individual psychotherapy, medications, and family and group psychotherapy, as indicated. It's a 12-month program since it takes a while for transformative healing to occur. Enough time for individuals to change lifelong coping patterns and ways of perceiving themselves and others. So we offer up to 12 months of weekly treatment with the goal, not a complete cure by 12 months, uh, but rather our goal is for them to be well enough so that those individuals can continue the process of healing and recovery without needing to be in the mental health system the rest of their lives. So is it weekly meetings? Uh, yes, it's weekly, or if there is family or group psychotherapy, they, we may some, they may sometimes come in more than once a week. Uh, but primarily it's once a week meetings for those 12 months. Now you've described dynamic deconstructive psychotherapy as helping someone heal from the inside out. Can you explain what you mean by that? Um, weekly individual treatment with dynamic deconstructive psychotherapy or DDP is the core required component of our program. 
DDP is a weekly individual psychotherapy model that's recognized by the Government Suicide Resource Center as having evidence of effectiveness for those struggling with suicidal thoughts or behaviors. It works through a different mechanism than most psychotherapies and feels very different to the patients undergoing it as compared to previous experiences they may have had in counseling. We know that suicidal individuals have an impaired emotion processing system in the brain. They're not able to process emotionally painful experiences through the prefrontal cortex because of atrophy and dysfunction in these regions. Instead, they activate the more primitive subcortical areas of the brain, which cause them to experience a high state of arousal and distress and a sense of emptiness and disconnection. They feel alone with overwhelming pain and suicide seems the only option. In DDP, instead of focusing on symptoms or giving advice on how to cope with each crisis as it comes up, we have patients practice connecting with and processing their emotionally laden experiences. And what happens when you do that is they activate and remediate the emotion processing system in the prefrontal cortex. And that's very much like how physical therapy remediates functioning after a stroke. As their emotion processing system begins to strengthen and heal, symptoms of anxiety and depression markedly improve and patients feel more connected with themselves and others, no longer obsessed with thoughts of suicide. It's a different way of thinking about treatment, but it really works. You said the emotion processing system becomes impaired, but I wonder how that happens. Are these people who have suffered an injury or were they born with an impaired emotion processing system? No, that's a great question. And really, we don't know for sure. We do know that genetics does play a big role in suicide. And so some people are born with a less well-functioning emotion processing system than others. We also know that um, Actually, head injury can affect the emotion processing system, and we've had some patients with that. We know that if there's trauma and neglect early on or bullying in school, one adaptation the brain does is actually shut down the emotion processing system, and, uh, and then other coping mechanisms kick in. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with psychiatrist Robert Gregory. He developed dynamic deconstructive psychotherapy 15 years ago, and today it's a crucial part of a recovery-based suicide prevention program that we're talking about. Is everyone in the psychiatry high-risk program taking medication? Is that part of it? About two-thirds of our patients are taking psychiatric medication through the program. Uh, although medications are not going to cure uh, issues, they can often provide symptom relief while we're waiting for the effects of the psychotherapy to kick in. And what we've found is that the need for medications decreases over time, such that most of our patients are on fewer medications when they leave the program than when they started. How many people have gone through this high-risk program since 2017? And do you have any demographic information you can share? Sure. Uh, the growth in demand for the program services has been phenomenal. We started out as just a very small program with myself and uh, a single therapist in 2017. We've had exponential growth at an average rate of 50% per year of new intakes coming in. So now we have 10 clinical staff with actually more on the way and have seen about 400 new intakes since the program started. Most of our patients are in their 20s, although we've had many in their teens and 30s. Uh, most are Caucasian, uh, but we've had a full spectrum of race and ethnicity, and I would love to see more individuals from underrepresented minorities entering our program. What have the outcomes been like, and how do they compare with other methods of assisting people who are suicidal? Well, I love that question because our outcomes have been outstanding, which has really encouraged us to continue and grow and expand services. We assess a wide range of outcomes on admission to the program and then every three months thereafter. Before the pandemic, the percentage of individuals in our program who would achieve remission, meaning free of significant depression, anxiety, and suicidal thoughts during the 12 months of treatment, approached 90%, which is yeah, really just amazing. 
uh, during the worst of the pandemic, that rate dropped to 70% as we were forced to provide services by televideo and many of our patients were extremely isolated in lockdown. Uh, for the kind of treatment we provide, we found that in-person is definitely more effective than televideo. So combining the pre-pandemic and pandemic figures, our remission rate now stands at 80% over the 12 months. We know those numbers are good, uh, given that many of our patients have been in multiple previous treatments without success. But how good is difficult to say since there are so few comparable programs and it's rare for a clinical program to collect and publish its outcomes, unfortunately. Why are you now going to include 14 and 15 year olds in the psychiatry high risk program? Is it because you're seeing more depression or suicidal ideation in the younger people? Yes, that's exactly right. Suicide attempts and completions are definitely moving into the younger age groups for really unclear reasons. And we can't just stand by without trying to do something about it. We've sometimes uh, in the past let in some of the younger teens into our program because they had no other option. They failed every other treatment option in town and had nowhere else to go. So we took them in and they've actually done very well. That's really encouraged us to expand into the younger age groups. And we plan to do that within the next few weeks as soon as we finalize our treatment model for those age groups. Do you think the high risk program would not be helpful for people who are older than 40? Our program definitely targets those who are teens and young adults, uh, but based on our clinical experience, we found that DDP can often be helpful for older age groups, but their treatment needs are more diverse. Some of the older patients are more set in ways, set in their ways. You know, I, I feel I can say that as a 60 year old and some patients in the older age groups have different causes for suicide other than an impaired emotion processing system and so may benefit from a different approach. I want to ask you how someone gets referred into the psychiatry high risk program. And I also wonder if you think the program would be helpful to someone who's reluctant, but who has a loved one that's begging them to go. So about half of our patients are referred by a by hospital or an emergency room and others are either self referred. Uh, they just call up our program or referred from other healthcare providers. So self-referral is actually very common and very easy. The person just needs to call our intake number. That's 315-464-3117, uh, 464-3117. And our intake coordinator, Nicole, will answer the phone, send out a packet for the person to complete. Uh, right now, we have a waiting list for adults. Um, and that's why we keep hiring, but hoping to whittle that down as soon as, um, as we've just hired another therapist. We do not have a waiting list for adolescents right now, so it's a good time for, for teen patients to call in. Uh, it's not uncommon for an individual to be reluctant to go to the program, whether teen or adult. So we really try to make the process as easy and welcoming as possible. Uh, but also recognize that it's very difficult to entrust your care to a total stranger and be vulnerable in that way. The only thing worse I can imagine than that, doing that, is the alternative of not getting the help you need and continue to suffer. I've seen the rate of drug overdoses has climbed during the isolation of the pandemic, and I wonder if you've noticed an increase in suicide attempts. Uh, the answer is yes. The national statistics indicate a substantial increase in suicide attempts. The figure I've seen is 30% increase, so it's huge, and especially among teens and young adults. And we've seen that at University Hospital as well, uh, which has really stretched our resources. And clearly, the need in our community is there. And uh, I'd also like to say we're a charitable, not-for-profit organization, and donations are always welcome to help our program expand and serve more people. How would you advise someone to be able to recognize whether someone is at risk for suicide? A common indicator of depression is withdrawal from people and difficulty functioning at work or school. There may be a lot of expressions of pessimism and negativity, but on the other hand, many people are very good at hiding depression. Um, so, you know, don't beat up on yourself if you, if you miss it. The most important take home point is to not be afraid to ask about depression and thoughts of suicide. 
So many people who are struggling with suicide do not share their pain with others. It's a very isolating kind of condition and they don't let them know that they're on the edge. And I've known so many people who wish that they had asked their loved one that question. So go ahead and ask the questions. Have you been feeling depressed lately? Uh, and then have you been having thoughts of suicide? If the answer is anything other than a definitive no, please refer them to the many resources available to them. You know, there are 24 uh, 24 hour national suicide hotlines. Uh, more locally, there's contact, which provides 24 uh, seven uh, uh, counseling by telephone, as well as referral to resources. There's always the emergency room, local counselors, and thankfully in Syracuse, there's also the psychiatry high risk program. This has been helpful information. Thank you, Dr. Robert Gregory. He's a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Upstate. And again, that intake number for the psychiatry high risk program is 315-464-3117. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air. An epidemiologist predicts how the Delta variant may impact fall and winter, next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. We're nearing the end of our second pandemic summer. Some things feel the same as last year, but there are differences too. Here to talk about where things stand is Syracuse University epidemiologist, Dr. Brittany Kamush. She's an assistant professor in public health at SU's Falk College of Sport and Human Dynamic. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Kamush. Hi, thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Now, as an epidemiologist specializing in infectious disease epidemiology, what have you learned from this pandemic? A whole lot. It's been a a, a year of learning. Um, you know, this is a, a once in a lifetime pandemic, and even though we learn about a lot of the great pandemics in school, you never actually expect that you're going to find yourself in the middle of one. So it's been a a year of learning, um, it, or almost two years now, I guess. Um, and, you know, I've learned that human behavior has a lot more to do with infectious disease transmission than I had initially imagined. I think that's my biggest uh, learning point. Human behavior in terms of people not recognizing or taking this seriously, or what do you mean by that? Um, not necessarily that people don't take it seriously, just that people get tired of, of being told what to do. Um, and we're definitely experiencing a lot of pandemic fatigue, the restriction fatigue. People just want to be back to normal, and, and I get that. I'm right there with them, but we still have a ways to go before we're out of this pandemic. Let's go back to the beginning of the pandemic. Experts weren't really sure how and why the disease was spreading the way it was at the time. Is there general agreement now on how this has spread and why it's spread so fast? Yeah, I mean, I pretty much all the evidence suggests most of the transmission is through the, the air, either larger particles or aerosolized particles being in close proximity with someone who's sick for a long period of time and, and breathing in the air. And that's how how it's spread. Um, and that's why it can spread so quickly. You know, we can't see these transmission events happening and it can spread from uh, one person to quite a few other people. Are there areas of the world that have been spared by this? And if so, do we know why? There are a few areas um, I wouldn't say necessarily spared, but less affected than we had initially pre predicted. So one of them is uh, New Zealand. Um, they and that was, you know, there we know why it was relatively less affected because of their very strict lockdown and quarantine. Uh, requirements. And so they've been living pretty normal lives because one, they're an island and they're able to restrict people coming and going much easier than some other places. And then they had a really strict lockdown and they have really strict lockdowns for a few weeks when they find cases and then they can go back to kind of normal. 
Another area that's been less hit than people predicted is sub-Saharan Africa, and we're not entirely sure why um, there have been fewer cases there than, than experts initially predicted. Interesting. Well, that's probably something you're looking at. Now, you teach students, and so here you are teaching in the midst of a pandemic about pandemics. Are your students more engaged than before? Yes, absolutely. They're they're not that they weren't engaged before, but all of a sudden it's a lot easier to draw parallels to their everyday lives, um, and it makes it a, a bit more relevant and makes people pay pay more attention. Is this virus spreading faster than the nineteen eighteen Spanish flu, and is it infecting as many people? So it's it's spreading actually about the same, right? So we saw in nineteen eighteen, within a matter of months, almost the entire world was seeing cases. Uh, and same thing with with the coronavirus. So, you know, within a few months, almost the entire world had seen a few cases. Um, and so it is at the 1918 influ uh, influenza was probably more deadly, at least at this point in the pandemic. Um, experts estimated about 50 million deaths from the 1918 influenza pandemic. Uh, at this point in the coronavirus pandemic, we're at about 4.5 million deaths. Um, probably due to some vaccination preventing some excess deaths. The Spanish flu back in 1918, there wasn't a vaccine that was developed during the Spanish flu and offered to people. So that's a huge difference, right? Between what we've got going on now. So yeah, that's one of the major advances is how quickly we were able to identify um, and develop a vaccine. So the first influenza vaccines weren't licensed in the United States until the 1940s, so 20 years or so after the 1918 uh, influenza pandemic. And so, you know, about a year into the coronavirus pandemic, we had a, several vaccine candidates. And so that's a huge scientific breakthrough and probably, you know, one of the reasons why um, we're having lower deaths um, at this point in the pandemic. Now, you mentioned you talked a little bit about human behavior um, during the pandemic that that has sort of been enlightening to you. But are there things that the virus itself is doing that surprise epidemiologists? Is there anything that I don't know caught you guys off guard a little bit? I mean, yes and no. So you know, the virus did mutate. That's not necessarily surprising. Viruses mutate all the time, and it's just a matter of which parts mutate. So. Um, if it's a, the part that the immune system recognizes, that's when you can start having variants that are a little bit different and can escape vaccines. Some viruses, those parts don't necessarily mutate very much. And so while we did expect the coronavirus to mutate, um, the RNA viruses, they just, you know, as they're reproducing, just kind of make mistakes and due to random error. And so we would expect that, um, but I think you know, predicting exactly when and how these these mutations and variants would would come about is is hard and can be surprising. Well, one big difference between um, August 2021 and August 2020, obviously, is the availability of the vaccine, at least for adults. Now, how much of a difference do you think the vaccine has made? And I just wonder, like, without it, do you expect that the death rate would be a lot higher than it is? Yes, absolutely. So, at least in the, the United States and parts of Europe um, and Asia, certain parts where, where the vaccine is widely available, uh, we forget that in most of the world, it's not easy to get the vaccine yet, right? So, a lot of a few countries have most of the doses of the vaccine. So, in the places where the vaccine is widely available, it has made a huge difference, I think, in the number of hospitalizations and deaths, um, especially because uh, the when we see deaths, right? It's because there's not adequate care. There, you know, there's not typically most of the deaths are due to that they just couldn't get the care they need. Um, and so, if we have hospital beds and we have, you know, well rested, uh, adequate staffing, that can prevent a huge number of deaths. And so, when we have fewer cases, fewer hospitalizations, that then will lead to fewer deaths. Um, because the healthcare system can adequately cope with the number of cases. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Brittany Kamush. She's an assistant professor in public health at the Syracuse University Falk College of Sport and Human Dynamics. 
So I'd like to talk about what has happened to put us in the position we're in now where positive cases have increased ninefold since the start of July. And here we are mid-August and hospitalizations are at the highest rate since February. So what's going on? I think there's a couple of, of reasons. Um, one is this Delta variant, which seems to have a shorter incubation period and is a bit more transmissible than the original version. Um, and then another thing is that human behavior. So as we saw in uh, coming into the summer, we had lower and lower cases, higher and higher vaccination rates. And I think people kind of let their guard down and were ready to get back to normal. And then as soon as we kind of let that that mindset set in, then we uh, increase the risk of transmission. And so the um, lessening of restrictions combined with the higher uh, percentage of the Delta variant, I think is leading to the number of cases and increasing cases that we're seeing right now. What do you think that means for our fall and winter here in central New York? I think it means we're going to need to keep uh, keep masking, keep trying to social distance and not have as normal of a fall as we were initially hoping we would. I had kind of thought that we would see an increase in cases in the fall and winter. Um, it definitely started increasing a bit earlier than I would have predicted. Um, I think largely due to the Delta variant, but I think we're going to still see an increase in cases unless we can get closer to that, you know, 95% herd immunity. So I've heard some people talk about how once the FDA gives its full approval to the vaccines, then maybe more employers are going to require vaccination. What will that do toward, you know, toward eliminating the pandemic? So as we have more and more people who are vaccinated, that leaves fewer and fewer people that the the virus can infect. And so if there's fewer people that can be hosts for the virus, then we'll see fewer and fewer cases because there won't be anywhere for the virus to go to. Uh, it will, will stop transmission. Um, and so that would be very helpful to reduce the number of cases. Um, but when we look at the big picture, I think New York State's at about 78% of, of adults are fully vaccinated um, at this point. Unfortunately, what we need to look for are the pockets, right? So we can have a high overall, but if there's a pocket, a neighborhood, a county, a school district where there's very low vaccination rates, the virus gets in there and then it spreads very, very quickly. And so while the overall number is really important, we have to look out for those pockets because those pockets of susceptible people where there's a pocket of, of a high number of people who aren't vaccinated, that's where the, if the virus gets in there, it's gonna keep transmitting and will spill out into the wider community. Yeah, that's an interesting point because all it takes is one person, from what I've read, this new variant, um, a person spreads it more readily. It's it's easier to spread. Yes. So, mm -hmm. um, well, how are we gonna know when all of this is over? Because it felt sort of over in the spring and I think people started kind of celebrating a little bit and you know, going out with friends more and doing the stuff we missed. Um, and now it feels a lot like we're back, you know, back in the thick of it. So how do we tell that it's over for good? That's a great question. I'm not sure that there's one right answer uh, to know when it's over for good. Um, I think at, at some point this coronavirus will kind of be a, a normal circulating, you know, winter bug. So there are several types of coronaviruses that cause the common cold in humans that just increase in circulation every winter. And so I think at some point we will get to, to where we're just used to this, right? We see increasing cases of influenza every year uh, and we're just, we're used to it. We expect it and it doesn't scare us or shock us. And so I think at some point we'll reach that level. I'm not entirely sure when that will be, if it'll be, uh, I don't think it'll be this winter, maybe two or three winters from now, it'll just be a normal, normal thing. I appreciate you making time for HealthLink on air. Dr. Brittany Kamush is an epidemiologist from Syracuse University's Falk College of Sport and Human Dynamic. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate Medical University's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air.
Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, what you need to know about adult epilepsy. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. If you or a loved one is newly diagnosed with epilepsy, you probably have a lot of questions. I'm speaking today with someone who has a lot of answers. Dr. Sharam Izadyar is an associate professor of neurology at Upstate who specializes in epilepsy. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Izadyar. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I've heard epilepsy described as a seizure disorder, but what is a seizure? Um, in order to describe a seizure, um, let me first give a quick background about how the brain cells uh, work and communicate with each other. Um, brain cells, that sometimes they're called neurons, they communicate with each other and talk to each other with chemicals and um, a small amount of uh, electricity or an electrical current. So during a seizure, what happens is that this electrical current, instead of going through their normal regular pathways in order to communicate with each other, they go out of control. Um, in other words, they go, um, they, they find a short circuit um, and they can create that something similar to, let's say, an electrical storm in part of the brain or sometimes even the entire brain. And they, this, um, they, they go sometimes in loops of electrical activity in the brain. And that's what happens when a seizure from atomical um, standpoint and physiological standpoint, when that's what happens during a seizure in our brains. So it's an electrical storm taking place in the brain is it affecting other parts of the body at the same time? Um, so depending on where the location of this electrical storm is in the brain and depending on what part of the body is controlled by that part of brain, then you will see manifestations or clinical manifestations of that electrical storm in that part of the body. The most common form of seizure that um, lots of times when somebody says seizure that comes to our minds is a uh, every repeated movement of a muscle or or part of the body that sometimes we call that a convulsion for example shaking or convulsion of the arms or legs and so on this is the most common known manifestation of seizure to general public basically that comes to your mind. So that's an example that means that part of the body that is controlling those muscles or those uh, limbs, whether it's arm or leg or both, are affected by that brain electrical storm and manifests clini clinically as repeated contracture of the muscles of that part of the body that uh, manifests a convulsion or shaking. Do seizures cause damage? Seizures, um, in the, the consensus among uh, the researchers and medical community is that short seizures are usually a transient uh, phenomenon that happen in the brain and they do not have a long-term consequence um, or damage. Uh, whereas there is a limit to the duration of this electrical storm. So there is a certain amount of time um, that if the seizure goes beyond that amount of time or limit, there is a risk of long-term consequence or, or let's say some damage to some of the neurons in the brain. And there is a bit of kind of controversy and, and uh, debate about what is that time frame. But again, in general consensus, and it depends on the type of the seizure, but for the most part, we consider that time limit as 30 minutes. 
So seizures typically that are less than 30 minutes are usually does not do not cause long-term um, consequences or, or damage. Now, what's the difference between seizures and epilepsy? So epilepsy in um, considered um, in someone who had more than one seizure. In other words, if someone gets to a second time seizure, then that's considered an epilepsy. Uh, in, in general, epilepsy is a, a disorder of the brain that has a propensity to generate seizures. So that's another way to look at epilepsy. Um, so some, some, uh, some people may have uh, parts of their brain to have this propensity or being ready to generate seizures. And then usually they have more than one seizure in their lifetime and then that's considered epilepsy. Once you are told that you have epilepsy, is this a chronic condition or will it go away with treatment? Um, one thing also before answering that question specifically is I have to mention that seizures um, in those who have epilepsy uh, has to be uh, something that we call unprovoked seizure, meaning that there is no immediate cause that that generate that, that seizure. A common example of that is, let's say, uh, alcohol intoxication, for example. Sometimes a large amount of alcohol can cause a seizure, but that's considered a triggered seizure. It doesn't mean that the brain necessarily has the propensity to generate seizures. So when we talk about chronic epilepsy, we're talking about a brain that has the propensity to generate seizures that are unprovoked. Um, I see. So, but 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 those um, those who have chronic epilepsy or have this propensity of generating seizures in the brain is usually typically a chronic condition um, and stays uh, for for years or even the entire life. This is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host Amber Smith, talking with neurologist Dr. Sharam Izadyar, who has a special interest in caring for people with epilepsy. So I'd like to ask you about diagnosing epilepsy. I imagine it's frightening for someone to have a seizure for the first time or, or second time, um, especially. What happens afterward and how do you go about determining, you know, why the seizure happened and whether the person gets the diagnosis of epilepsy? Everyone with an unprovoked seizure uh, needs to go under a series of tests that include the most important parts of that other than um, basic obtaining history from the medical professionals and, and physical exam and neurological exam. Then when it comes to tests, the most important tests are an EEG basically, which is an electroencephalogram, which records the brain activity or the electrical activity of the brain and um, an imaging of the brain. So these are the two most important tests that is required for seizure. And with that information, can it help you determine if there's triggers for a particular seizure? Um, so uh, those who had an un provoked seizure, um, or in other words, who had also uh, a second time seizure uh, and are considered to have epilepsy. In um, actually a, a large percentage of them, we don't find the exact cause of their uh, epilepsy or seizure. And that number ranges something around 30, 40% of patients with epilepsy. Um, so their imaging of the brain, uh, which typically is uh, an MRI of the brain or CT scan of the brain, and their uh, EEG recording um, is normal. So it's not uncommon to not find the exact cause of the epilepsy. This is one of the most common questions that we usually the patients with epilepsy have. Um, and with this uh, time uh, medicine, we have... Uh, capability of finding some answers in the percentage, but it's still about 30, 40% of patients, we don't we never find the exact cause of the seizures. Well, what do you say to a patient and their family about what it means to have epilepsy today? 
Epilepsy is a chronic condition, as you mentioned and talked about, and um, it's a condition that patients who have epilepsy, uh, it affects every aspect of their lives. Um, from day-to-day -day, um, activities and errands and, and activities, um, it is potentially uh, affected by, by this condition. Um, and, and the most important part of that, for example, in the social structures that we live these days and in the complicated and um, structures, um, for example, uh, driving is, is one of the important parts, uh, part of our lives. And that's uh, certain restrictions um, or activities that can put someone at risk, including driving limitations uh, in those who have uncontrolled epilepsy, but fortunately, I mean, at some points, lots of patients get to a good control of their seizures and would be able to pursue all of these activities like everybody else without seizures. So I want to talk about treatment, and I understand there's not a cure per se for epilepsy. Do most people with epilepsy take medication that will control the, the seizures? The vast majority of patients with epilepsy eventually their seizures become under good control with medications. Um, and uh, however, there is still like a percentage of patients uh, that ranges something around 30% in, in general. Uh, eventually, the seizures do not respond well to medications. So, aside from medications, are there other options? There are other options available, especially for those who have um, not responded to, to medications. So the first line is always medications, but eventually if someone falls into that category that medications do not uh, control the seizures, uh, other options include considering on the, um, the type of the epilepsy and the cause of that epilepsy surgery can be an option basically. Um, or there are some devices that collectively they are referred to as neurostimulator devices or neurostimulation uh, that can have some effect in controlling seizures. And, but, but it's very dependent on the type of the seizure. You mentioned surgery. What is done in the surgical procedure? When we are talking about the surgical procedure, we're talking about potentially if you are able to find the location of the brain that is generating the seizures, because lots of times it's a small part of the brain that is causing that. If you are able to locate that um, with several tests and special tests that we have to do, and then we can, uh, we can confirm that area of the brain is safe to remove. So if that part of the brain can be resected um, it, with, with minimal uh, deficits, um, and uh, that uh, lots of times leads to a good control of seizures or even seizure freedom. So do you have patients with epilepsy who have their seizures under control and, and don't have side effects? Is that kind of a realistic goal for someone? Absolutely. This is a very realistic uh, goal for lots of patients who have epilepsy. Their seizures become under good control with medications with no or minimal um, side effects in, from, from the medication. So that's that's uh, certainly um, reachable and, and uh, lots of patients um, are in that situation. But as I mentioned, unfortunately, not all the patients are in that category. There is uh, a percentage that eventually either develop side effects with medications or their seizures do not become under good control of medications. And those are the ones that we approach with other options that we talked about, a neurostimulation or surgery. It's good to know there are options. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Sharam Izadyar. He's an associate professor of neurology with expertise in epilepsy. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air.
Here's some expert advice from Dr. Amy Tucker from Upstate Medical University. How can women reduce their heart disease risk? Studies have shown that if you adopt five heart healthy habits, you can reduce your risk of heart disease by 80 to 90%. And those things are eat a healthy diet, exercise, keep a healthy body weight, stop smoking if you smoke, and if you choose to drink, do so in moderation, which for a woman means no more than one alcoholic drink per day. And what, what we know about those habits is that they stack. Healthy habits add up. They add on one another to reduce risk. So a Mediterranean diet really impacts your risk of cardiovascular disease. Uh, walking and exercising significantly increases your um, your life, your long, the, the length of your life. So, and reduces your risk of having a heart attack. And what we, we also know about the fitness level is that with each increment in your fitness level, you derive extra benefit, but you get a lot of that benefit in the early parts of your fitness. So you don't have to invest a lot to get a lot. Uh, every step counts. When, when women were studied in terms of the impact of exercise on their heart health, they didn't find a lower limit. So every time you add activity to your, to your day, whether it's 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, uh, you're going to get a benefit. So if you can only do five minutes, you should, you should do it. Uh, the more you add, the better off it is. So, uh, that's what I would really encourage women to do is adopt those healthy habits. Lifestyle is medicine, and you can really reduce your risk by 80 to 90%. You've been listening to Dr. Amy Tucker from Upstate Medical University. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Eating disorders cause great suffering. Treatments vary in efficacy and can bring their own sets of problems. Three of our writers gave us insight into how healthcare professionals and others sometimes cause more stress to the people they say they wish to help. Sophia Valesca Gorgans is a medical student at Emory University. Here is her poem on obesity. There is a weight to my body I fear causes doctors to judge me for my lack of control. Just stop eating, they say. Your risk scores for heart disease are too high. Don't you know better treatments are available than your own will to exercise? I admit I have no will to exercise. They list medical managements, try to convince me of surgery where they cut the stomach small. I don't know how that can be better. I had a friend who died on the table, blood clot to the lungs, or lost too many vitamins, called dumping syndrome, as if giving it a name makes it worthwhile. I live in this body and breathe. I am worthwhile, but sometimes I forget because of how, not what, how they speak at me. Jessica Mehta is a citizen of the Cherokee Nation and the author of several books. She is currently a fellow at the Halcyon Arts Lab in Washington, DC. Here is her poem, Great Grace and Sharp Wings. 37 years old and still starving myself. How much longer until I don't care anymore? You say stop caring now. But I don't know if I can be one of those old ladies with limp hair and no lipstick. Not that this is old, it's just, when does old happen? How do we simply slip into it like it fits? I'm not sure I have the capacity to grow old with grace or by any other means. Do we call fat 60-year-old women fat fat? Or is that when plump begins? How about 70 or 80? When does it all end? And how do I stop running hands over stomach to see if today's a skinny day? My plan is to die at 66, right before the life insurance expires. And maybe, if I do it right, they'll say it was a slender old woman who fell with great grace and sharp wings in front of that rumbling train. There'll be no open casket, and guilt-laden memories are kind to the dead. Please, if you remember, call me beautiful in the obits, and choose a photo where my collarbones 
protrude like plumage. And finally, Sarah Coleman, a retired neonatologist from Springfield, Missouri, gives us a hint of the story behind one woman's weight in her poem, Rage. Compulsive eating. To keep what you would take from me, I consume and assimilate voraciously without hunger. To hide what you can't see in me, I add layers, immobilizing dressing and armor. To silence what you refuse to hear me say, I pad and stuff myself stealthily, muting my screams. Female insignificance. A doctor changing into scrubs in nurses' locker rooms. She surrenders her thoughts for a man's presentation so others will listen. Securing the mortgage, her name on the deed, her husband is listed as owner. Delivered from her body, her children bear their father's name. And so she ate and ate and ate, and no one dared notice. Weight loss. I burn my banner. I squelch my rebellion. I shrink. Not to walk the runway or join the Olympics of lust. Not to be what I am told I should be. Small, boyish, passive, quiet. I am a woman warrior, exhausted by the weight of insignificance. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, interest in public health professions has grown during the pandemic. If you missed any of today's show or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. Mm-hmm.